shorter. So Micah is one of those prophets. And when we look at, at a prophecy, we usually see two elements to prophecy. One is judgment. They pronounce judgment um, on the culture that they live in. And a lot of the judgment that they pronounce actually is on God's people who are not living in accordance to the covenant um, that God set out for them. And then the, 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 the second pathway that they, that they pronounce is hope. And uh, my prayer is, is that as Jolene read this passage, um, that you would remember verses 12 through 13 as we are wading through verses 1 through 11. And my prayer is that, you would, uh, that the enemy would bring zero condemnation to you if you know Jesus Christ. And uh, just pray that, that, um, that you would also just um, open your heart and your mind to let the Spirit of God convict you and um, show you uh, places in your life that he, maybe he wants to um, heal or, or show up. Uh, but this is a, a book of hope, ultimately. Um, Micah prophesied in the 8th century before Christ um, over about a 40-year period of time. There were three kings um, that were um, reigning um, in three different generations. It was um, King Jotham, uh, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah. Uh, Jotham and Ahaz were um, corrupt, and Hezekiah actually listened to Micah and, um, and repented. We see that in 2 Kings. And what's going on in the culture is very similar to what's going on in America today. Um, it was a very affluent culture. Um, the primary sins that Micah um, uh, pronounces is the sin of idolatry and the sin of covetousness. And I'll be saying it um, very slow like that throughout the entire service because I butcher it every time I say it. It's covetousness, right? Or it's the sin of coveting. Um, the ninth century poet, Waldo, Ralph Waldo Emerson, is quoted as saying this, the gods we worship write their names on our faces. Be sure of that. And a man will worship something. That which dominates will determine his life and character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. And so the question for all of humanity isn't, do we worship? The question is, is what direction does our worship travel? That we all worship something. Um, and the, if, if we're not worshiping um, the one true God, we're worshiping an idol. Anything that we look to for ultimate security, um, ultimate comfort, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate hope is ultimately an idol. Idolatry always leads to covetous, covetousness. Covet, to, it causes us to covet. How's that? When a person covets... He or she allows their desire for that which is coveted to govern the relationship with other people. This may become the motivation for big things like murdering or stealing or even lying to attain the idolized thing. Again, that which brings ultimate satisfaction or identity. Idolatry and covetousness are so related that Paul referred to them as the same thing in Colossians 3, chapter 5. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And as I was thinking about how idolatry leads to covetousness and how covetousness go, actually goes to injustice, 
And this book really is about injustice in many ways. And, in, and if I could define um, injustice, it would be um, taking something from somebody else to better your position. It'd be taking something from somebody else that is uh, vulnerable, that is defenseless. God speaks often throughout his word about defending the weak, the widows, the orphans. So idolatry leads to covetousness, and covetousness leads to injustice, which is treating others unjustly. The prohibition of covetousness is prohibited by the last commandment, the 10th commandment. Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, his donkey, or anything that is his neighbor's, including his traitor. I got a Traeger recently, thanks to some friends. I had coveted theirs for years, and they finally broke in and gave it to me. <laughs> Thank you. The 10th commandment, thou shall not covet, is different than the first nine commandments. The first nine commandments are externally observable. You can tell when I'm breaking the first um, nine commandments. I can tell when you're breaking the first nine commandments. We can see if they're being broken, but you cannot tell if someone is breaking the 10th commandment. You don't know at the end of the day if I'm coveting something or someone, and I don't know if you are coveting something or someone. The heart is only known to yourself, to myself, and to God. We know in our hearts that we are guilty when nobody else, when others may think that we're innocent. It is so easy to covet. Um, as I was thinking through this, it's, it's probably like my like number one sin. I mean, I, last week there was another number one sin, but, but this week covetous is like my number one sin, and it seems to define everything else, all the other um, sins in my life. Let me ask you, if, picture this. If you took your kids to the toy store, where do you go? Toys R Us is out of business, right? That is just anti-American. How does a toy store in America go out of business? It's because we have Amazon. It's, let's take your kids to Amazon, take, take, your, take them to a toy store, and then tell them they can buy everything they want, anything they want. What would happen? Do you think they'd ever finish, and they'd say, enough is enough, mom and dad, I've got all I need. I've got all I want now. Now, fast forward 25 years, 60 years for some of you. Fast forward, and you put yourself in shields or Home Depot or Ethan Allen or Amazon in front of the computer on Amazon. Same problem. It's never enough. You see, the sin of covetousness could also be called materialism. And it's committed by people who are covet, who covet and are obsessed with acquiring more and more wealth and things. It's tied into the growing popularity, actually, of the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, I think, if we have time. You see, we were created to love God and love people in that order. And when we don't love God and others as we ought to, our desires get all out of whack, and that messes up the way that we're meant to relate to other people. When I want other people's stuff, when I want what they have, their personality, the way they speak, I want the way that their, maybe their wife relates to them or their kids relate to them. I want their house. It messes up the way that I relate with them. And instead of loving those people, we covet their stuff. And that stuff isn't just physical. 
I mean, there's things that we want that are not physical. Instead of desiring our neighbor's good, we do whatever is necessary to do good to ourselves. Instead of being content with what we have, we desire what they have. And I want to just tell you this, to desire good gifts, good things, is not, that's not a sin, actually. I mean, God has created the mountains. He's created the rivers. He's created us individually to enjoy it. It's not wrong to, he's given us affections to desire things that he has created. The problem isn't in our desire, it's in our desire for the wrong things. Desires are contagious. If someone wants, if someone else wants something, we naturally start wanting it too. Have you ever been there? A guy at the gym, I, I drive a, uh, a Lexus 3000 that actually my son and his daughter-in-law gave me. And my, and my daughter-in-law, his, my son's not married to my daughter-in-law. Yes, that, he's married to Krista. That's, hey, Krista. So, yeah, wh- who are you anyways? You're my daughter-in-law. You're my grandson's mom, right? Yeah. Um, they gave us a car. It was so gracious of them. They, they sold it to us for um, what I thought was $3,000 below book value. But now that I've driven it two years, they overcharged me by 2000 bucks. But I'm still trying to forgive them. Mitch is in here. Um, but, but it's a great car, uh, even though the transmission's going out. But my, 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 friend, my friend Jim at the, at the, from the gym just came to the, he came to the gym, Jim came to the gym on Friday with a brand new Tacoma. And I'm going, Ma, that is awesome. I want a new Tacoma. So, and, and, I, and I started to covet it. When I started doing that, I started to get a little bit jealous of Jim. Rather than celebrating um, this good gift that he doesn't need, I need more than he does. No, instead of celebrating this good gift, I started um, coveting it. And, and coveting always messes up the relationship with the person that has what you want. Nelson Rockefeller, who was a billionaire when he wrote this, probably would be a billionaire in today's dollars, um, um, how much, somebody asked him, how much money does it take to make you happy? And he replied, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. The, the problem is, the little bit more is never enough. It's like crack. The theologian Snoopy one time was sitting on top of his doghouse, and it was Thanksgiving. And he was bitter. He was ticked off at Charlie Brown and his family because they were in the house having a great Thanksgiving dinner when he is on his doghouse, it's sleeting, eating dog food. He's complaining, and then the thought occurs to him, and he says to himself, it could be worse. I could be the turkey. (laughs) So whenever you're tempted to covet or to wallow in dissatisfaction, say this, that it could be worse. And also, whatever it is that you have now that you're not satisfied with, um, it's, you don't deserve it, actually. I have people tell me all the time, like, they'll, they'll ask me how I'm doing, and I'll go, man, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. I, you know, I, I, I deserve hell, but I'm not going to get it. Or I'm saying I'm better than I deserve, and they go, man, you deserve a lot. I'm going, you haven't read the Bible. Because what I deserve is hell actually. And what you deserve is hell. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins, that you're not going to get hell and everything else is a pretty good day. Right? The 10th commandment is about replacing the wrong desire with the correct desire. With replacing um, idols of people and things with worship of Jesus Christ. 
So covetousness is a type of warning system. It's a light on the dashboard. It tells me that all is not right spiritually in my life when I'm staying up at night wanting things and devising a plan on how I can get those things. You see, the all-consuming desire to possess something at any cost is a sign of adultery. Um, Simply desiring something is not a sign of idolatry or covetousness, but saying, I'm going to get that at any cost, any cost. You see, idolatry and covetousness results in the failure to love God and others. Covetousness places one's ultimate allegiance in the acquisition of the possessions of of others, which often leads to other grave sins. Adultery always starts with covetousness, wanting what you don't have. Pornography is rooted in covetousness. You're not, it's, 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 it's ultimately, um, you want a fantasy. As we look at Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, we're gonna, uh, Micah's going to hit them really hard about the sin of covetousness. And I want to just tell you, just kind of give you a roadmap here. We're going we're gonna to lump verses 1 and 2 with um, 8 and 9. And then we're going to lump verses 5 and 6 with verse 10. So we're going to be all over the place. Um, So Micah 2, verse 1 and 2 says this, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. And he's talking about God's people. Make no mistake about it. He's talking about God's people. They may not all be regenerate, but they're all Jewish. Some of them are believers. um, um, Some of them are not believers. They covet fields and they seize them and houses and they take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. The offense is idolatry and covetousness. That leads to lying, stealing, which leads to exercising their power over those who are vulnerable. The term, um, the term here in verse 2, they oppress a man in his house. The term they oppressed makes us understand that they took advantage of those who were vulnerable. They took advantage of those who were powerless. They took advantage of those who were defenseless. They cared nothing for their neighbor other than take advantage of them to build their own kingdom. And there's such a trend of that in, um, in America today. And I'm not even going to talk about the country. I'm going to talk about the church. That the church should be gracious and giving and compassionate first. And wanting judgment and condemnation second. You see, these um, God's people that Micah is uh, pronouncing judgment on, they, what they wanted, they devised a plan to take it, and they exercised a plan with no regard for others. Look at verse 1 again. Um, in their beds, they devised wickedness. They actually, at night, they thought about it. They thought about, how am I going to get what I want? So they actually devised evil plans. And then in the morning, they got up and they did it. And I was just thinking about that in my own life. I was just thinking that... Um, and, I, and I've acknowledged this before, I mean, that, that one of the, one of the uh, sins in my life that the Lord wants to root out is he wants me to, to have my identity solely in him, my worth solely in him, 
not on what anybody else thinks of me, not on any um, lack of affirmation, not on any criticism. Um, I'm to listen to any criticism, but my, but my identity is to be in him. And sometimes I can, I can um, lay awake at night on a Saturday night thinking of sermon illustrations that are somehow going to impress and make people laugh. That's actually covetousness, covetousness. That's what that is. That I'm coveting um, people to think of me in a certain way. Here's the opposite. Um, it, to, to lay in bed, um, devising a plan, thinking about how I can come up with sermon illustrations that will edify the body and bring glory to Christ. Do you see the difference? So what do you sit up in bed thinking about? What plans are you making that are, that, um, that are, co- that are rooted in coveting? They saw what they wanted. They devised a plan to take it. I think of, I think of David and Bathsheba. Devised a plan to take it and exercised the plan with no regard for others. David had no regard for Bathsheba. He had no regard for the nation. He had no regard for her, her husband Uriah. They devised evil in their beds. They lied, they, they, they lied awake and tried to figure out how to take advantage of others. And if we look at verses 8, 9, and 10, it's actually just more of the same. Um, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time in that. You can study that on your own, but it's more of the same. It's driven by, by um, wanting... Um, what they didn't have to build their kingdom at the expense of other people. So these leaders, the people that Micah is speaking to, they practice the world's version of the golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. And that is a golden rule that we should never ascribe to in this church, um, in, um, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. Um, is that we should, we should live with generosity and generous hearts. You see, these people were prideful idolaters who operated independent of God's law. And there's, there's actually, ultimately, there's no getting around God's law. Actually, I'm going to save that for another time. If you would, uh, if I'm just going to take you some application, verses one through five, uh, let me ask you this. What do you lay awake planning for? It's okay to, sometimes we, we got jobs, right? We, we lay awake thinking about like how we're going to put things together. That's not, that's not covetousness. But do you lay awake wanting what other people have? Do you lay awake like wishing you were somebody else? Wishing you had a different personality? Wishing you had a different speaking voice? Wishing you looked a different way? Wishing your husband or wife treated you in a certain way? Well, you can pray and ask God, God, these are my heart's desires. But when it becomes coveting, it's when you get up and you're jealous of that person that has what you don't have. And you actually, instead of celebrating, right, it says in Romans to rejoice when people rejoice, and you find yourself being bitter when things are going great for other people. You know that you've got a heart that's infected with covetousness. What's the root of these desires? What's the root? It's a question to ask yourself. When you want that, what's the root? And the root is, it's, it's idolatry. But what kind of idolatry? Where are you looking for your ultimate worth, your ultimate satisfaction, your ultimate peace, your ultimate identity? Because wherever you're looking for that, you're going to do whatever it takes to achieve that. 
I, want to, I was thinking about this contrast. And the contrast is this. The way of God's spirit-controlled people, you and I, is to lie awake at night devising ways to bless people and to empower them by serving and helping them. To think of Jim at the gym that has the Tacoma. To actually like send him a, a text or an email and really like, I'm so jazzed for you, man. Do you want to trade cars? No, I'm so jazzed for you. The greatest commandment that Jesus said, he said, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is what? To love your neighbor as yourself. And I was thinking about this as well, that not everybody starts off corrupt. Many start off with good intentions. When I was in the investment business for 20 years, I, was, I, I got to see a lot of Ponzi schemes. I, a lot of my clients were naive and put money into Ponzi schemes. Get rich quick. And the more that I studied these Ponzi schemes and the people that started them, I believe that people typically don't start out corrupt. They don't take that first dollar looking to ruin people. They take that first dollar and they see they got away with it. And they see that it didn't actually put that person totally in the poorhouse. And so they take a little bit more and a little bit more. Next thing you know, a little bit's not enough. And enough is not enough. And they do whatever they can to build their wealth. Not everybody starts off corrupt. Many start off with good intentions. Let me flip it. Have you been on the other side? Has anybody taken advantage of you? Have you been treated poorly? Has somebody coveted something you have and you have experienced their jealousy? Maybe worse, they've stole something from you. A person. Money. Your dignity. How do you respond to that? First Peter 2, 18 through 23 has an answer. Back when I was in the investment business, we had a little bit of money and uh, we had a, a car that was getting old. It was a Cadillac Fleetwood. And I had an administrative assistant who was going through a rough time. And Nancy and I prayed about it. We gave her um, this, it wasn't a Tacoma. And the wheels were barely on, but it worked. And we gave it to her. And she seemed grateful, but lo and behold, five months later, I get called into my boss's office, and he wrote me up for proselytizing, proselytizing this woman by talking too boldly about my faith. And what it showed is a couple of things. One is it showed um, the wickedness in my heart is that I was mad because she was ungrateful, that she would receive a car from me, and that she would turn and try to get me fired. Once again, it showed my heart that what I coveted was for, for, for me to uh, give and for people to respond in a certain way rather than giving like Jesus gave. And Nancy and I went out to dinner with a, a, a couple of ours, and uh, man, I was just, I was confused, I was mad, I was hurt, probably more hurt than anything. And this lady shared this passage with me from 1 Peter 2, 18 through 23, and I love it. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it and you endure? What Peter's saying is like you, you make your, I mean, if you sinned and somebody beat you for that, you deserve that. But he says this, but what if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, and he was beaten. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So, Paul says it in a different way. And I got to tell you, I don't always think this way. I want to get even sometimes. I want to, like, bust somebody in the chops. I want them to know that they hurt me or hurt somebody in my family. You may relate with that? Like, nobody messes with my family. My biological family and my church family. But sometimes we just need to let the Lord be our defender. And Paul says this in Romans 12, 17 through 21. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, not the other person, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When I read this part that says, by, by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head, I'd say, great. That's what he deserved. But you know what the, you know what the heart of that is? It's that it, it, it sears their conscience. That by, they know that they did evil. And by you returning that evil deed with good, it actually softens their heart. It sears their conscience so that they're actually going, there is something otherly worldly uh, to, uh, with this person. And that they might ask questions and it, might, and it might actually come to Christ. So as we transition here to verses 6, 7, and 11, I want to say this, is that um, coveting produces a hard heart. And I've put this on the screen because in this little dialogue between Micah and the false prophets, it's hard to know who is saying what. And there's different opinions on this with different commentators. Um, and I went ahead and just wrote my own commentary because I'm right on this one. Um, actually, I'm, I don't know if I'm right. Um, it just seemed reasonable to me and a number of commentators uh, lined up with a number of commentators. But here it is, Micah 2.6. In, in verse 6, it's the false prophets that are saying, do not preach. Micah, shut up. Isaiah, shut up. Hosea, shut up. Amos, shut up. Do not preach. Next line, the narrator says, they continue to preach. How can a good prophet, how can a prophet from God not preach judgment on sin? Next line, one should not preach of such things, false prophets. Disgrace will not overtake us, false prophets. What they're saying is chill out. We're God's people. We're people of the covenant. There's no judgment that's going to come to us. Have you not read Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 18? We're untouchable. You're annoying. Isaiah or, and Micah, you sound like a drippy faucet. Stop dripping on us. 
Bring us pleasant prophecies. Don't talk about sin and repentance and pleasing God. We don't want to hear any of that. We just, we prayed the prayer, we've been saved by grace, and we'll just leave us alone and let us live our life any way we want to live it. Isaiah said something similar in chapter 30. He says, for they are a rebellious people. They're lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. You see, their head was in the sand. They didn't want to hear it. They, they want to live however they want to live while ignoring the call to holiness. And then verse 7, it starts off with the false prophet saying this. Should this be said, O house of Israel? I can just see the false prophets walking around and going, should Micah be saying to us, the chosen people? Should Micah be saying this to us? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Surely this good God would never bring judgment. Then the last line in verse 7 do not my words, this is the Lord speaking through Micah, do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. In Hebrew, walking uprightly was used to contrast those who please the Lord, walking uprightly with those who were earlier condemned for their covetousness. The Israelites, God's chosen people, had their fingers in their ears saying, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. I don't want to hear you. Very similar to what Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24, 36 through 39. Speaking of that day of judgment when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead. And brothers and sisters, I want to remind you there's good news for you. But there's bad news for those who have yet to put their faith and trust in Jesus. Let me say that again in a different way. There's bad news for those who will not ultimately put their faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus said this, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. How are they unaware? He was building a boat in the desert, telling people to save themselves. And you want to know this? The door of the ark is a picture, a picture of salvation, that the, the door of the ark stayed open. It, anybody could have walked on that. Anybody that wanted to save themselves and believe in the ark could have saved themselves. Everything was great. They did not know judgment was coming. They did not want to believe it. And this is for you and I. The problem is not just with false prophets who preach false doctrine. The reason that there's false teachers out there today and there's false prophets then is because that's what the people want. That's what the people want. They want to hear partial truths that bring no conviction and that don't result in repentance. These are preachers who specialize in gathering crowds and are glad to tell them what they want to hear. These are preachers that build up the people's idols rather than tearing down the people's idols. Verse 11, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, 
He's a windbag, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher of his people. You see, if we have itching ears, if we have, in other words, if we just want to hear what we want to hear, we don't want to hear um, um, sermons or read books or listen to podcasts that talk about sin. We only want to he- listen to um, podcasts and sermons and read books that talk about grace. And at the end of the day, I do too. It's going to always end with hope and grace. But I need to be reminded often that I was running in the opposite direction when Jesus arrested me, that I was an enemy, not a friend. That I was the ugliest baby and the most rebellious baby in the orphanage when God said, that one. We need to be reminded of the sinfulness of man. You see, when we surround ourselves with those who tell us what we want to hear, that's what we're going to get. And I want to ask you, are you surrounding yourselves with those who tell you only what you want to hear? Do you have friends that love you enough to see patterns of sin in your life? I'm not talking about friends that have a big old log in their eye and they're just picking a little speck out of your eye. But friends who are taking the log out of their own eye and they're, and they're seeing this pattern of sin in your life. And they say, brother, sister, it does seem like all the time that you're spending here or all the money that you're spending here It does seem that you might be worshiping something more than you're worshiping the king. Can we talk about that a little bit? I don't want to, to, um, like, read your mind, but I I want you to to have a pure heart. Are we surrounding ourselves with people that are willing, that will allow them to ask some of those type of questions? What is the type of person who listens to God's word, it's one with a soft heart. And you know, the way that we respond to God's word is an indicator of our, of our heart. It reveals a desire for true worship or it reveals idolatry. See, when we covet what others have, it's a slippery slope that can lead to a hard heart where instead of God's word penetrating and nourishing our heart, it just runs off. And I want to just give you three points to consider from uh, these uh, verses 6 through 11. And then we'll finish on 12 through 13, which is hope for those who covet. The first thing I want to have you consider is be careful who you listen to and how you listen. Don't settle for a preacher who will tell you only what you want to hear. And this is why we preach at WCC. This is why we preach through different books of the Bible. Because we have hobby horses. I do. If we, if we were just doing topical all the time, you'd probably like hear the same sermon over and over again. You'd never have the full counsel of God's word. I'm not saying it's, it's um, the only way to do it, but it's the way that we do it here so we, you can have, the, you can have a, a, a full menu of God's word. You can hear the um, judgment along with the hope. So number two, number one is be careful who you listen to and how you listen to. Um, number two, um, false prophets, false preachers destroy lives with half-truths. Um, if, if you, every once in a while, just when I'm napping on Sunday afternoon and I really want to get in a bad mood, I'll turn on some of these preachers on TV. And I just, I always, I'm, 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 I, I start coveting, like, like, how do they, like, They've got a cathedral, and they've got, like, jets, and, like, that is, like, the worst sermon I've heard in my entire life. How does that happen? 
And I look at these guys, and they're, 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 when I listen to them, there's some truth in it. They're not, they're not preaching all lies, but they're half-truths. They're building up people's idols instead of knocking the idols down. False prophets destroy lives with half-truths. That's number two. Number three, love the truth. Love the truth of God even when it hurts, and especially when it hurts. Love God's word. I don't know about you, but I don't have a problem with truth that makes me feel good all the time. And we finish here in Micah 12, uh, chapter 2, 12 through 13. There's hope for those who covet. I will assure, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men and women and children. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. You see, Micah gave them the bad news first, now he's given them the good news. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That nobody can come to faith unless they know that they're a sinner and they've sinned against a holy God. And in delivering the good news, the voice here turns from the third person to the first person. It says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. This is God speaking. And I believe that the reason that God is speaking in the first person is to be crystal clear that God's aim is to save, not destroy. Remember that quote last week, that God is lopsidedly loving. I will surely assemble all of you. You see, his law, the Ten Commandments, um, everything he's asked us to do in the Bible, and combined with our inability to obey the law on our own, is meant to graciously lead us to faith in a Savior who is the perfect law keeper. That Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. I will surely, it is meant to give the, um, it is meant to give God's people confidence in his salvation. Grace is the last word. So who is it that can have confidence in God's salvation? um, They call it the remnant here. He says, I will gather the remnant of Israel. What's a remnant? My wife said it's a piece of material at the end of a roll. Doesn't help me. It means, it means it's, it's the end, it's what's, it's what's left over. And we see the remnant all over Scripture, and it literally means a survivor of a crisis. And this concept is found in the rescue of Noah and his family in Genesis uh, verse, uh, chapter 6 through 9. They escaped the flood, or Lot and his family escaping judgment from Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. So who is the remnant referring to in this passage? Is this for us today? I'm glad you asked. I want to tell this right up front. The Lord is not, here's what the Lord is not doing. He's not assuring that, assuring Israel that all of Israel will be saved. Um, Go to Romans 9. We can have a conversation on later. He's not saying that all of Israel will be saved. He's saying only the believing remnant of Israel will be saved and the believing remnant of the Gentiles. There's nobody saved by obeying the law. That Abraham was saved by faith. Noah was saved by faith. Only the believing remnant will receive salvation, which includes you and I, the Gentiles, anyone who is not an ethnic Jew, along with any believing ethnic Jews. And here's a, here's a little um, 
trick for you. When you're reading the Old Testament, just um, do this. Never read the Old Testament apart from the New Testament. Never read the Old Testament as if Jesus never came and the New Testament was never written. In reading the Old Testament text like this, we should immediately ask this question. Does the New Testament shed additional light on how I am to understand the nature of such promises and their recipients? So we can ask that question today. How does the New Testament shed additional light on how I'm to understand what, what Mike is talking about here in 12 through 13? And we go to Romans 9. And I'm actually, I'm, just because of time, I'm not going to... Um, Why would I start honoring time now? <laughs> Let me just, so, so Romans 9, 24 through 29. Let me just read this. Um, actually, I'm going to start um, in, in uh, Malachi, and we'll read all the way through the Gospels, and we'll get to, no, we won't do that. We'll, uh, we'll start in Romans 9. Um, verse 6. But is, it, but, but is it not as though the word of God has failed? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So what Paul is saying here is that, that not all Israelites, not all Jewish people are saved. But there are Gentiles that are grafted in. And then he, he goes, if you go to verses 24 through 29, it says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. That's you. Praise be to God. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Verse 27, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So who is the remnant? How do we know who the remnant is? There's books written on this. I can tell you this. It's more complicated than what I'm just going to say, and I don't understand it fully. But it, but it is finally this. It's the believing remnant. Only those who believe will be saved. In other words, the Old Testament prophetic promises of Israel regathering is being progressively fulfilled in the salvation of believing Jews and Gentiles in this present age, the church. You see, the church has not replaced Israel. Let me just say that clearly. The church has not replaced Israel. We're not to be thought of as a new Israel. Rather, the church of the present age is simply the continuation and the maturation of the believing remnant of Israel. Namely, the disciples and all others who received Jesus as Messiah. Thus, the fellowship or church established by Jesus in the New Testament stands not in opposition to God's people in the Old Testament, but in direct continuity with Old Testament Israel. You see, this body of believers is the true Old Testament, Old Testament Israel. It is the remnant. And here's what I'm not saying. Don't read into this. Um, I don't know what's in store for Israel. There's, there seems to be something special. But we spend too much time thinking about that stuff. 
And where I want to drive you to is that, that, that the remnant is always a believing body of people. And verses 12 and 13 are for the believing Jews, and they're for the believing Gentiles. And I'm going to finish up here at the end of verse 12. So, so even though um, the remnant means left over, there will be a multitude of people. I don't know what it, it means left over, but there's going to be a multitude of people, that there's going to be people from every tribe, every nation, every ethnic group that the good shepherd will bring into his pen. And then in verse 13, he moves from this picture of sheep in a pen um, to a picture of humans in prison behind a wall. He says in verse 13, he says, he who opens the breach goes up before them they break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So, so he encourages the believing remnant that one will go before them to breach, which means to break through a wall, will go before them. And this person is none other than King Yahweh who will break through and set the captives free. And you see, um, Israel knew this language in real ways. You see, they, they were in exile a number of times. And it was only God that could break them out. And it is only King Yahweh who, who could break us out from the power and the penalty of sin. And through his resurrection, he has broken through the wall of death, where death will, will never see a final death if you know Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says this, he has delivered you. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, he not only promises to gather his people, he not only promises to knock down the walls that, um, that prevent us from a relationship with the Father, but he promises to be with us. He promises to be our Lord and our King, and he will lead us. In Revelation 7, 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And we're gonna pray. And I just wanna remind you, brothers and sisters, that we have a good God. We have a God that if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have a God that will never let you go. You have a God that, that, that rescued you when you could never be good enough. And you've got a God that hangs on to you in the worst of times, in the midst of your sin. There is hope for those who covet. There is hope for idolaters. And through this book of Micah, we're going to see in the next five chapters as well, we see how the hearts of man are so poorly equipped to follow God's laws and show the love of God to the world. We can't follow his laws on our own. That's why we needed a Savior. That's why we need God's spirit in us to help us obey. Thankfully, where Israel and all of mankind, quite frankly, failed, Christ succeeded. He demonstrated his love even to death. And today, Christ sent the Holy Spirit so that the hearts of all of his followers may be touched, allowing us to fully love others and love God. Fulfilling the law of God to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. Let's pray. Father, grateful for your holy, living, and active word. God, thank you that, um, that we can read passages like this. And Lord, allow your word to, um, 
to expose um, the ugliness and the deceitfulness and the wickedness of our heart. And knowing, Lord, that you came to give us a new heart, a regenerated heart, a heart that has new desires. And God, you tell us in Philippians that, um, that you uh, will help us obey. And Lord, I pray that what would compel us today and compel us this week to, um, to um, want to love you, to mm-hmm. want to worship you, to, um, to uh, love um, others as ourselves. God, I pray that we would be compelled by the love of Christ. That we wouldn't be compelled by fear over judgment because we're never going to get judgment. But God, I do thank you. God, in my life, I thank you that you love me so much that when I've veered off course, when I've wandered, that you gently discipline me um, back into the fold. And God, I thank you that we are possessors of the only news that can set the captives free. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you breached the wall, that you tore the veil that separated us from the Father. And I thank you now that we can come to the Father with confidence, boldly, that we can sit in our daddy's feet. And God, I thank you also for the gospel that you've armed us with. And I just pray, God, that we would be ones who um, want to do what Noah did and Micah did and Isaiah did, God, that we would want to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ that can set the captives free. And God, would you free our loved ones? Would you free our relationships from the bondage of sin before you come back? God, whatever you do, however you choose to use us to that vein, we'll give you all the glory, the praise, and the honor. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.